Hello and welcome to Conversations and Community Leadership, a project from Leadership for Civic and Community Engagement at North Carolina A&T. This course is stewarded by Dr. Karen Jackson. Now, here's the show. Hello, and welcome to our podcast. Before we begin, we want to offer a trigger warning for our listeners. This episode contains discussions about rape and sexual assault, which may be distressing for some people. We understand that these topics can be difficult to hear about and may bring up painful memories or emotions. We want to ensure that everyone listening feels safe and informed. If you think that this content may be triggering for you, we recommend that you take care of yourself and consider skipping this episode. We want to remind you that your mental health and well-being come first. We also want to remind our listeners that there is some support available for those who have been affected by rape or sexual assault. If you or someone you know needs help, we encourage you to seek professional support or reach out to a helpline. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. American Indian communities are disproportionately impacted by sexual assault, rape, and rape culture. According to a 2022 Amnesty International report, Nearly one in three American Indian or Alaskan Native women will experience rape in their lifetime, which is nearly twice as likely as white women in the United States. Amnesty International first reported on this endemic issue in 2007, and 15 years later, the landscape for Indigenous women hasn't improved. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, The United States population is 1.3% American Indian or Alaskan Native. By contrast, in North Carolina, Robson County's population is 43.6% Indigenous. Robson County, situated in the southeastern part of the state along the Lumbee River, is home to the Lumbee Tribe of North Carolina. The Lumbee Tribe is a state-recognized tribe and is the largest tribe east of the Mississippi River and the ninth largest in the country. In 2022, the Rape Crisis Center of Robeson County reported a continued influx of victims. The numbers remain consistent in comparison to previous years and show no sign of subsiding. This trend points to the endemic quality of this issue of sexual violence against indigenous communities, including those of Robson County. Throughout history, sexual violence has been used as a tool to colonize and demoralize the indigenous people of the Americas. Additionally, the systemic dismantling of tribal sovereignty has contributed to the staggeringly high rates of sexual violence in present-day tribal communities. Indigenous communities also experience social barriers such as limited resources and access to services that exacerbate the issue. Today's podcast will examine the social factors that impact the state of sexual violence across the United States, especially in Indigenous communities. 
Hi there, good Saturday morning to everyone. My name is Brenda Reuter. I am a PhD student at North Carolina A&T. Um, I work as the diversity and inclusion head at Contour Brands, uh, more probably better known as Wrangler and Lee Jeans. Um, I am studying women's leadership in the uh, leadership program here at North Carolina A&T. And I'm joined here with uh, my study uh, partner and uh, friend, uh, Parker Watson. Hi, uh, my name is Parker Watson. I, as Brenda said, am also in the PhD program at North Carolina A&T State University. Um, we are studying leadership and I work currently at UNC Pembroke, the University of North Carolina at Pembroke in the Career Center as the Associate Director for Experiential Learning. Um, I have a storied history with some of the things that we've been talking about today. Um, I've been volunteering with the Rape Crisis Center of Robson County for nearly a decade now. Wow. Um, and so this is a topic that I'm extremely passionate about, uh, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of the things that we've learned with you today. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, you know, it's interesting when Parker and I started discussing opportunities for projects and, and how we would uh, do our research for this. Um, it was really her background um, with the Rape Crisis Center that anchored a lot of the, the work that we're gonna, um, that, that we did, and then ultimately we're, what we're gonna talk about today. So um, our topic is, is rape, um, sexual assault, sexual violence. Uh, there's a pretty big, umbrella in how we talk about rape. And I have to say going into this, I, I really thought rape was pretty linear. Um, I thought women were sexually assaulted. I, I Obviously, I've, I've as a woman, um, I've my whole life have been, I've had that in the back of my my head that, gosh, I hope that doesn't happen to me. I hope it doesn't happen to my friend. It's, it's always been on my conscience um, as knowing that that's a possibility. I don't think until we did the research um, and some of that, our insights we'd like to share with you today that I understood how different your experience as a survivor can be and how much of um, things that surround you. Um, we'll talk a little bit about rape myth and so uh, in, in some other constructs here in a minute, but how much all of that is influenced um, with by your experience or, or your experiences is influenced by that. What um, what, 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 when did you start at the Rape Crisis Center? What, what brought you to it? So I actually got connected with the Rape Crisis Center um, when I moved to Robson County. I had just taken a job at UNC Pembroke and uh, one of my colleagues on campus nominated me to join the Board of Directors. Mm -hmm. um, and because this is an issue that I am incredibly passionate about, I, I've been connected to women's issues for um, as a passion point for most of my life probably mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so when I got connected with this opportunity I really threw myself into it I ended up serving as the chair at one point I have um, been a victim's advocate meaning that I've taken the the duty phone and taking taken um, calls when people call the crisis mm -hmm. line um, and and served advocates in that way or served survivors in that way um, but I think that this is something that is such an important issue for me because you're exactly right. There's so many different ways that um, sexual assault can show up because it doesn't just look like, I think the picture that most people conjure up in their mind is this 
violent encounter where mm-hmm. people, um, usually a stranger, yeah. are are engaging in this act. Um, but that's really not what it looks like. I think sexual assault and rape, uh, while it can look like that, but sexual assault and rape looks like a lot of different things. Sometimes it looks like um, repeated pressure or... Um, guilting somebody into to a sexual act because uh, consent really requires that you're giving enthusiastic, continual, and freely given consent, um, meaning that you have to, you can withdraw that at any time. Um, and I think that those are the types of things that uh, create gray area and nuance around yeah. sexual experiences that people don't really think about or talk about as they are um, having conversations with their partner, uh, teaching adolescents sort of how to engage in sexual relationships safely. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's that's the place where it really is most valuable for us to be having conversations. You know, you brought up a, a, a great thing, and I think we can start, um, I think it's a, a good place to start is consent. Um, when we talk about consent, um, I think there's some misgivings about what that that looks like because it 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 my understanding um, in rape is is you have to be able to consent in the affirmative. So if someone is passed out or someone is you know very um, intoxicated or, or or somehow you know incapacitated, they lack the ability to consent. So even if they say yeah, okay, you know, if they cognitively can't consent, that is not being able to consent in the affirmative. And I, go ahead. Absolutely. And and I think that's something, so one of the things that we've been looking into is sort of rape culture and how that is cultivated. So this idea that it really starts with ideas and attitudes that are founded in things that we see and hear in society all the time. So you hear people saying like, oh, I, we're going to have a drink, maybe loosen up, get get somebody in the mood, right? That's so great. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's like you say that, but but I think if you're listening to this podcast and if you're of a certain age, I mean, that's that was not uncommon for people to say, well, let me just have a drink or 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 your you know partner saying, why don't you just have a drink and just loosen up? And and I think that's just so powerful the way that has changed. You, you brought up rape culture, and that was something that, that we talked about, and it ties a little bit into um, rape myths, and, and we hear a lot um, about, you know, she was asking for it, or um, you even mentioned it, it when we were talking, you know, just because it's your partner, um, whether it's your mm-hmm. spouse, your partner, whatever, you still have to have consent, and I don't, I don't think people... I think people think like, oh, we're married, so it's a free ticket for I can have sex whenever I want all the time, and and that's not true. Yeah, there's like this kind of assumption there because of the pre-existing relationship, and, and it isn't true. Consent is still required. I think consent, when people think about it, because... Um, at least in my lifetime, this has started to be a more open, more forthright conversation, but it didn't begin that way when I was younger. So the way that people think about consent, I think it's like kind of has a poindexter vibe, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, um, 
is it okay if I do this? Is it okay if I kiss you? Is it okay if I touch you here? But really when we're talking about consent, it can be something that feels much more casual, that feels much more sort of in the moment. Do you like that? Right? You know, asking a question like that. The affirmative, going back to that. Yeah. You know, that that's an easy way that feels more natural in mm-hmm. a sexual uh, sort of experience where you're not undoing the mood that has been set already, mm-hmm. but you're still continuing to get consent throughout the mm-hmm. experience. And I think something like that, um, having people practice or, or understand consent in a way that feels natural, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. robotic can make it more accessible and easier to engage in in your relationships. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, I'm just thinking back on the the research that we did in preparation for this project. We really focused um, on uh, Robeson County, specifically uh, the the Lumbee uh, Indian tribe located uh, there in Robeson County. And, you know, obviously through through your work at the Rape Crisis Center, really learned a lot about how survivors may experience the system differently. Um, so why don't you start off with some of the, the insights that we learned about kind of the experience specific in Robeson County for survivors. Sure, so a little bit of background about Robeson County. It is, um, you know, land-wise the largest county in uh, North Carolina, and it is also Um, the poorest county so Mm -hmm. there's a lot of poverty there's a lot of disenfranchisement Um, I will say that in Pembroke which is kind of closer to the southern border um, closer to South Carolina state Mm -hmm. line um, that is the home of the Lumbee tribe of North Carolina which is one of North Carolina's eight state recognized tribes The Lumbee tribe is the largest tribe east of the Mississippi. So it has 60,000, I think, somewhere in that ballpark, 60,000 enrolled members. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really a large and diverse group of people um, who are spread across the country, across Mm -hmm. the globe, uh, but but concentrated mostly in Pembroke and Robeson County. this tribe has sort of a a long history the experience of eastern tribes is really different and unique than than western western tribes because they've had uh, longer experiences with european contact Mm -hmm. Um, and so they really have a unique and and special relationship with this place but also an experience moving Mm -hmm. through sort of American culture yeah Um, one thing that I think is kind of important is thinking about and talking about how endemic this issue is in indigenous communities so nationally you're looking at about one in six women who Mm -hmm. might experience something like this but in indigenous communities that is basically doubled so it's Mm -hmm. about one in three women um, and that happens for a lot of reasons there's several sort of background issues that are layered on one another to kind of build up to create an environment where Mm -hmm. uh, indigenous women are disproportionately impacted by something Mm -hmm. like this you know one of the things um, as we were researching that I think was uh, was really powerful um, as I learned and and actually this this kind of tied into the project that we ended up doing for this class um, was really the system of trust um, and and how lacking that was because 
you know, traditionally, what one would hope when is sexually assaulted, they would call the authorities. Um, the authorities would come in, secure the situation, care would be given to the survivor, and then prosecution, so on and so forth. Um, in doing the research here, and as, as we were looking in this this project, that's really not the case in, um, in uh, Robeson County because of the lack of trust from many of the victims who happen to be part of the Lumbee tribe and in, in, in not having that trust maybe with law enforcement from a lot of the things that we talked about. Um, I, I think that you did a really good job. If you could kind of expand on that a little bit, talking about that relationship. Yeah. So before I kind of launch into my perspective on that, I do want to acknowledge that I am a white woman. I think that's really important to think about that I have spent over a decade at this point in Robson County. I've worked closely with members of the tribe and um, I have have really integrated myself into the community, um, but the lens that I hold is that of a white woman and, and yeah. that comes with a certain level of privilege. So I think Absolutely. it's important to sort of acknowledge that for our listeners who can't see my white skin <laughs> um, before we move on. So from my... From what I've learned and experienced in living in Robinson County, kinship is something that is incredibly important. And so working with uh, my students on campus, working in the community, one thing that I have experienced or observed is that there's a degree of sort of vouching, right? When people from outside the community that come in or people who we don't know, who we aren't connected to uh, in Robson County, there is a level of distrust. And in my mind, I think that makes sense, right? You're talking about historically. I I, I experienced (laughs) that trying to get this project done. I kind of had to call you to call them to call me back. So yes, 100%. You had, yes. So when I was first getting to the community, I had to build initial relationships and have Mm -hmm. those people vouch for me to my students and to my colleagues. And that that is very much how it works and i think that makes sense if you think about the history sort of of this this mm-hmm. place because you're thinking about a marginalized community yeah. where a several literal boatloads of outsiders came in and then wreaked havoc on this right. community uh for for hundreds of years mm-hmm. um and so thinking about sort of the relationship Um, of a community to itself and to outsiders, I think in that historical context totally makes sense. Um, But that's the reality of sort of how we have to operate. So if we... And then how does that that tie in? And apologies, you just... um, That's okay. Remind me of something we were researching is how does that, that kind of vouching... How do, how does that show up when a victim has to call the police? So I think one of the valuable things is that Robson County is a rural community. Right. It is, um, consists of several small towns. Many people know each other. And uh, one thing that is commonly happens in Robson County, a refrain that you'll hear over mm-hmm. and over again, is, especially related to the Lumbee tribe, is who's your people? People will yeah. ask one another that to try and identify those kinship connections. Yeah. So um, they're looking to identify 
a common relation um, Mm -hmm. or someone who they know in common. Oh, I went to high school with your your auntie or something like that. And I think those sort of connections instantaneously then make us friends, allies. Yes. Um, You know that I am someone who is at at least marginally safe because I know. And so most police, most of the Lumbee tribe don't have existing relationships with the authorities, I would, I would imagine, or have that kind of kinship. I think that, well, I guess it depends. When you say authorities, are you talking about law enforcement? Yeah, I'm just talking about, like, something that in our research that, that we uncovered is, is again, you know, part of, of, of kind of the, the chain of events that happens after a sexual assault is, you know, the notification. And there, there's what we found in our research, there's many reasons women don't report um, a sexual assault, you know, maybe because they're afraid of the assailant. They might, uh, they might feel that they're not going to be believed. Um, and then kind of where we are right now is that they don't trust the law enforcement because they haven't had that, you know, who your people, you know, um, that type of thing. I think, well, and while we were, uh, on site working with the rape crisis center, I think we saw, some of that. So Virginia talked about some of the work that they're doing in the community to build those relationships before they get to the crisis moment. Um, They are working with some of the uh, homeless population in the area, building those relationships, taking them um, clothing, socks, uh, toiletries, and things so that they're just building up that trust, building up those relationships. Yeah. And Virginia does a really, as the director, she really does an amazing job of, of, of doing that. And I think you bring up a good point of building that trust both with um, potential survivors because it's it's sad to think that you have to almost let people know what your services are in advance of something. Um, I, I think, again, one of the things that we uncovered in the research and, and is important for people to know is that a rape can happen to anyone in anywhere. And I have to say, um, during this time, that was an aha for me, was thinking about you know, uh, women who are, are currently experiencing homelessness. You know, how does that lo- look? And then going back to you know, consent. So you know, if you're in a situation where you're earning money as a sex worker and then you withdraw your consent, you know, what does an assailant you know, that changes the dynamic because pers- a person can say, no, I, th- this was the ing- agreement. And, that, and that's another thing that we learned in our research, that at any time consent can be pulled. Consent is, is, is it, it's dynamic. It, it, at any time you can say, you know what, I don't like the way this is going and, and someone can, can pull that consent. So that was, for me, just learning more about the demographic and, and how um, women experience rape. And, and, and I'll say that too, we did also find out in our research that rape is, is not um, specific to women. Disproportionately, women experience sexual assault and rape and sexual violence. However, it is not, it, it is not unilaterally women. Men can also um, experience that. So, Go ahead, were you going to... Yeah, I think that ties back into a little bit of the rape myth piece that we talk yeah. about too and sort of that... Um, what really is rape? Again, Mm -hmm. how we conceptualize rape. Is it something that is an aggressive sort of taking of something Mm -hmm. that, that has not been expressly given to me? Or can, you know, can a sex worker be raped? I think that people kind of have in their mind that 
just by being in that sort of profession or occupation that that's automatic consent and that's a blank check right yeah yeah Yeah. and i and i think that's not really what that looks like we're very clear (laughs) it is not a blank check so um and i think shifting sort of that mindset and thinking about the way that that uh rigid ideas about gender and Mm um and gender roles kind of play Mm -hmm. in and build into that as well Yeah. yeah um so I think, go ahead. I was going to say, so I, I just want to make sure we tie off, because um, this, this obviously for, for you and I both was um, a, a very impactful opportunity to, to not only do the, the project for the uh, Rape Crisis Center, but to also just learn more about it. So when we talk about some of the, the key rape myths, um, I just want to kind of tie off on those. Um, you know, one of them that, that we discovered is is someone might say, well, she wasn't really raped if she didn't report it. Mm. You know, and by the way, for, for the, as we discussed this, I'm going to use she, and we've used she a lot uh, just for ease of use. I'm, I'm picking that pronoun. Um, you know, another one um, is that, you know, she asked for it. She was out by herself. She didn't, you know, that's, she didn't prepare herself. That's more of that, that victim blaming. Um, what we just talked about, sex workers can't be raped, which is completely false. Um, you know, um, men don't get raped that's another one of the big yeah. rape myths um and then also that um you know the way they dress so a lot of those kind of play into it and i think one of the the biggest ahas that that type that i didn't realize was a rape myth um until we did this research was that um how often it goes unreported like if she doesn't report it it means that she was okay with it and as we did the research and, and really kind of rolled up our sleeves at the rape crisis center it's you realize how multifaceted the experience is. It's not just violence against you, but it's it's like, okay, well, what if this is my husband or my boyfriend or my caregiver? What do I do with my kids? How do I provide? Where am I going to go, you know, for a home? Um, you know, we heard stories of, of you know, some, some, some very tough stories to hear. And, and I remember when we were, as part of this project, we were cleaning up the closet and, and, and there was there was bins and bins of sweatpants and, and I kind of looked at you like, what is this for? You know, we looked at Virginia and she's like, some women come with ripped and torn clothes or quite frankly, they don't want to put on whatever it is they had when they were assaulted. So, you know, in my head, I, I thought, wow, being in a hospital after just being assaulted, trying to figure out, is it safe for me to go home? How do I get my kids? And then walking out in black sweatpants and a sweatshirt, and then all of that is not your fault and not something you did. I, th- I think one of the, the the things that we heard was how often women blame themselves and, and or, or victims, I should say more broadly. And that was one of the the rape myths that really just kind of stuck with me. Is I I think we very often you were very candid in, in you know your privilege as as being a white woman. Um, you know I'm a Hispanic woman but we have privilege in that we have resources and education. And and I very much think it's important for people to understand that if you are a victim of sexual violence or assault, you are probably gonna handle it differently than someone else, but it is not for us to judge how others handle that situation. It is it is for us to support and lift them up and, and help where we can, but not to judge how they did or did not handle it because quite frankly, we just don't understand all of the, the stratification that, that really surrounds that situation. And, and for me, that was 
really powerful in, in the research because I, in my head, would be like, well, why don't you do X, Y, Z? Well, why don't you do, well, of course, because I'm looking at it from my lens, from my vantage point, and I think that's one of the, the cornerstones of, of rape myth, regardless of what that myth is, is making sure that you're using a lens other than your own lens of personality, privilege, whatever, whatever that may be, so... I think also something to consider maybe is is expanding the idea of what rape is doesn't just happen for the assailant or mm-hmm. for the perpetrator, right? That this is a systemic issue and yeah. the the survivors of rape or sexual assault, they don't live outside of that system. So sometimes women don't report uh, simply because they also don't recognize what happened as right. rape or sexual assault. That's um, that that yes, that is very very important. <clears throat> Say that again. <laughs> uh, sometimes people don't report because they also don't recognize what has happened yeah. as rape or sexual assault, and I think that is an important point to drive home is really just figuring out what even is uh, consent, what does that right. look like, and when has this happened to me, and then thinking through, because I think, um, you know, having seen this even in my own circle around me, mm-hmm. I have seen women sort of just say, oh, that that wasn't that big of a deal. Right. That's just how they are. We right? had too much to drink. Yeah. Whatever. You know. <laughs> it's almost like women or victims can fall prey to that own rape myth where they say well I asked for it I shouldn't have worn the short dress girl if you look great in that dress wear that wear what makes you feel beautiful that's not an invitation for someone to to, you should be able to stand naked in front of another person and still have autonomy over your body yeah um, and and I think that that is an important piece of that, too, is that that everybody is existing within this system. No yeah. one exists out of it. And so that impacts the way that people respond to these experiences and and then shapes sort of what happens next. Right. Yeah. So. Well, all right. Well, we certainly um, thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, just in, in closing, just a couple of things. Um, we obviously worked uh, with a local rape crisis center. So uh, please know that in most communities, counties, cities, um, there is a rape crisis center um, that is available. Also, um, if there is a national rape crisis um, center. So if you have any questions, you feel like you or someone you know has been a victim of assault, please call the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The hotline is available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They will help you with resources that you need, connect you uh, locally, and their phone number is 1-800-656-4673. 1-800-656-4673. Thank you for taking time to join us today. We hope that you had an opportunity to learn something um, about uh, rape, rape culture, and rape myth. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Conversations and Community Leadership a project from Leadership for Civic and Community Engagement at North Carolina A&T with your host and leader, Dr. Karen Jackson. Dr. Karen Jackson can be reached at ktjackson at ncat.edu. You can also check out more 
from North Carolina A&T and their Leadership for Civic and Community Engagement programs at https colon forward slash forward slash www.ncat.edu forward slash academics forward slash graduate hyphen programs forward slash CED forward slash leadership hyphen studies .php. You can also type it right into their main website and find it at www.ncat.edu. Thanks for listening. This has been a Big Mouth Media Production.